In the next section, Paul continues to build a proper biblical theology of marriage by providing important guidelines for three types of Christians uh, that really made up this church in Corinth. There really are three types of Christians in every church. And of course, you have unbelievers in these churches as well, but this is what he directs these guidelines toward. There's three types of Christians that made up this Corinthian church, and, and he has guidelines for each category or each type. That's what we'll be looking at today. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our section will be verses 8 to 16. We can pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our first point or first type that Paul addresses here. Number one, these will be marriage guidelines for Christian singles. We see this in, in verse 8. It's kind of interesting. I'll, I'll just say it before we get into it, but each category kind of gets progressively larger. To the singles, he says a few things. To the next group, he says a little bit more. And to the last group or type, he says a lot more. And uh, why, I don't know. It, maybe it just seems appropriate for it to him to do it that way. But he does give and issue some guidelines here to Christian singles, which every church, most churches usually have some Christian singles in them. And this church certainly did. So we see this in verse 8. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Right there. Uh, the term unmarried represents those who are either single by choice or by default because they have not yet found a guy or gal, uh, you know, to enter into betrothal with or to marry or to be engaged with or anything like that. So these would be people in this church, Christians in this church, who want to be single. They don't want to date. They don't want to court. They don't want to have a spouse. And it would be to those who want that but just haven't gotten there yet. And then the term widows carries the classic meaning. Uh, you know, we're, we're always looking at the original language to see what, what's, you know, not actually meant here. The English translations get close, but are not close. They're pretty much spot on. But sometimes you can kind of get into a deeper view of what's being said there. But this is just, this, these are just widows. The, these are Christian gals, primarily what he's focusing on here, because that's a widow that were married at one time, but their spouse has passed away. And so that's the, the focus here. That's the singles in this church. And the Greek word for widows is seda. It appears 27 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. Why? Why are widows mentioned in the original language and obviously in the English here, why are they mentioned 27 times in the what, 27 books of the New Testament. Why is that? Because when Scripture was God-breathed and recorded, let's just say the first century, there were a lot of widows. Lots. More so then than, than like per capita than, than today. There were a ton of widows in the first century. Why is that? Because men died young. They did. They died young. The average life expectancy of a male then was 35 to 40 years. That's it. And most of it was due to poor hygiene. You know, it was a 
dirty community, just as the country is here. You know, you go out, clear, there's a lot of dirt. And, and back in the Middle East, in this, in this time, in, the, in, in this community, in these areas, there was a lot of dirt. And there wasn't a lot of hygiene. You know, we, we know that uh, when people would go and visit a relative or a friend or a neighbor, the first thing they would do when they went into the house is somebody would wash their feet to get the dirt off their feet because they didn't want to get the dirt floor dirty, <laughs> literally. I mean, it was just, there was just a lot of dirt and hygiene. It wasn't that people wanted to be dirty, but there was just a lot of dirt and you didn't have plumbing in most cases. You started to have plumbing and see that in, in Rome and stuff, but it wasn't quite like what we see today. So there was hygienic issues, and that means a lot of bacteria, and that means viruses and, and these sorts of things. An ancient papyrus was discovered not too long ago. I think it was the 40s or 50s, somewhere around there, maybe the 60s. I don't remember the exact date, but it was discovered near Egypt, and it confirms the shorter life expectancies and, and, and the reason being poor hygiene. It shows that the mortality rate was actually higher among those who lived away from the cities, away from the towns, in the rural places where there's more dirt and far less medicine. Literally, I mean, this papyrus is, is you know, uh, I don't know, a couple thousand years old, and, and it literally shows the ages of men and women and where they live and how long they live. I mean, that's pretty amazing documentation for back then. But the folks who loved the country didn't live as long as those who lived in a city. If, or actually in Paul's day, and I'm, just, I'm just trying to help you understand why there were so many widows in Paul's day, but in Paul's day, if a gal got married at the lawful age of 14, now that seems awful to us, but then 14, you know, I was a junior high pastor. There were 12, 13-year-old, 14-year-old girls who were women. And the boys were like, you know, they were way behind. So 14 is, is kind of the lawful age. 12 was the lawful age in, under, in the Roman Empire, but about 14 for Jewish people. So if a gal got married at the lawful age of 14, to a man in his early 20s, because that was kind of the Old Testament custom. You had maybe a 14 or 15-year-old girl. She'd marry a 21, 22-year-old guy. She had, if this, in this particular scenario, she only had about 14 years with him. That's it. That's not very long, right? 14 years of marriage. You get married young. You're expecting to have a long life and a long marriage, but... The fact of the matter is with the shorter life expectancies, the men died off 35 to 40. She'd have in her marriage about 14 years tops with a husband. Doesn't seem long, but if the marriage was kind of sour, that would have seemed like an eternity. <laughs> Amen? I don't get along with him at all. This is the longest 14 years of my life. And this is normative back then. Becoming a widow by 30 was common in antiquity. That's basically unimaginable for us. Now, it does happen here in our culture on occasion. You know, we have terrible cancers and these sorts of things, but this was normal back then. If, if you had a marriage that went beyond 14 years because he was still alive, you needed to throw a special party. 
In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5 mentions young widows three times in verse 9, 11, and 14. Young widows, young widows, young widows. They get special instructions from Paul there in that text, in those texts. And the idea with them is that, yes, the church needs to care for them, but since they're younger, the likeliness is that they can probably get remarried. So you need to focus more so on the older widows. Maybe there's some that broke the mold and their husbands, you know, they, they lived into their 60s and the husbands died. And so the older widows are going to be less, less, far less likely that they're going to get remarried. So make sure you really take care of the older ones. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Tim 5. But young ones are mentioned three times there. Paul says to the unmarried, those are the ones who are, want to be single or just haven't found a spouse yet, and to the widows, those who have lost their spouses, and usually they were younger, he says to the Christian singles, because that's what this type is altogether when we put them all together, they're singles, it is good for them to remain single as I am. This is what he says. That's his guideline. Right off the bat, we were learning very quickly here that the apostle preferred singleness for his own life. He preferred that for himself and not in a selfish, controlling, religious, pious way. He actually preferred that for Christian singles. It'd be better, he says, for you to remain as I am. If you're, even if you're a widow and you've been married, it'd still be better, is what he's saying. Why is that? Because not having a wife, not having children, uh, not having, and it could be that the widows do have children, who knows, but he, he's just simply saying from his preference and from his experience, not having a wife, not having a children, not having a household to care for allowed him to move very freely and to serve God very freely without having to worry about those things. Because once you get married, you have to be concerned about your spouse and your household. And once you start having children, then you really don't check in with your spouse very often. You're focused entirely on the children. I'm speaking to the moms in here. I have a spouse. I just love little Jimmy. This is what happens. Mom's just like, the kids. And Paul's saying that as a single, don't miss the blessedness and the awesomeness of being able to move freely and, and serve the Lord and, and do the things that you want to do and to go where you want to go without having to get permission from your husband, without having to be concerned about who's going to wash the, kill, the children's feet. What are we going to do for dinner tonight? You don't have to worry about any of that. And if you've been married for any length of time, and maybe you love your husband, I certainly hope you do. If not, we can do counseling. But you know the value in what it was like when you were single. You could move around. Now, you know that there's value in the marriage, too. I think there's far more value for me in the marriage than there was as a single. Because I am a guy, and I didn't know how to cook or do anything, so I was a disaster. I didn't even do my laundry. Hygiene was not high in my apartment. But he's just saying, look, because you know, the, the problem is, is that singles, in most cases, are sitting there wanting to find somebody while missing the blessedness of their singleness. They don't understand that you want a spouse so badly, and, 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 and I get that. And Paul addresses that and says, if that's how you are, then you ought to find one if you burn with passion. He says that in a little bit, but, but you don't miss the forest for the trees. There, there is a blessing that comes with being able to move freely and not having to be worried about a spouse all the time and your children all the time and how to pay for the larger house or whatever it is. That's all he's saying. He could 
travel from one place to the other? Do you think he could have done those three missionary journeys as a married man? How would he have done that with a bunch of little ankle biters at the house? I'll be home in two years. That doesn't work. Okay. I love your God. That's what the wife would be thinking. I don't want anything to do with your God if he's going to take you away from me like that. Think about the implications. But there's no way he could have served the Lord the way he did if he'd have been, dare I say, saddled with a spouse and children. That sounds kind of rude, but and sometimes that's what it feels like for both sexes. He couldn't have done it. Traveling from place to place, spreading the gospel. Being single is advantageous in this regard. And Paul wants the Christian singles in Corinth to see this. They could be like him, free to move, free to go. And he's not suggesting that marriage is an incarceration. He's just saying that once you bind yourself to a person like this, you're bound to them. And they have say-so in your life. They have conjugal rights. They have authority over your body. Think this through, singles. That's what he's saying. And I suspect, I know it's conjecture, you know, but I suspect that this exhortation from Paul to the singles might have been more appealing to the widows because in staying single, if they just remain single, they could potentially avoid more heartache by losing another spouse. Because statistically speaking, a woman who was married and lost her spouse usually remarried and then lost that one too. The women outlived the spouses. The wives outlived the spouses. You could go through two or three in your lifetime. How many spousal deaths do you want to go through? I know how I feel about my wife, and I don't want to deal with that one, but I don't think that I'd want to kick it in gear and do it again later. And the potential for that was there that, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a widow at 30, and he's saying it's good to be single. I, I, I can understand what he means by that, because the chances are that if I find another guy, and we get married, and we honor the Lord, that I'm probably going to outlive him too. Now, that's two burials. Let's say I go for three. Maybe there's three burials. How much heartache am I willing to put myself through? Not to mention, and this is totally pragmatic, but burial then was very expensive. They put the bodies in the tombs, and you had to have a tomb. I'd get like a five-seater. You know, just put my whole family in there, right? I mean, seriously, you had to buy tombs. You think of Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea providing the tomb, a rich man's tomb. So that was a tomb that was like in, by the Del Rio Country Club as opposed to on Scenic, right? You understand? You had to have a place to place your spouse. And it was expensive then, just as it is today. So how many husbands am I willing to bury? And can I even afford that? I'm just... Putting it out there. You talk to some of the gals in this church who are married now, and, and, you know, and they're like, oh, I know if something happened to me, Fred, you'd just go and get remarried, because that's what men typically do. But the wives don't always go out and get remarried, because they don't want to go back through that again, potentially. They don't want to spend the next 20 years retraining another guy. Amen? I just spent 40 years training Fred. I'm not starting with Biff. 
I always come up with names that aren't represented in here. I said Biff, not Bill. Don't look at me, Bill. Bruce Biff, not Bill. Who's named Biff? Somebody out there watching, the, well, there's not anybody watching this, but if they were and they're named Biff, they're like, I'll never go to that church. Never. At just practically speaking, you know, this might have been more appealing to the widows because they were now free to move and go and serve the Lord, and especially if they were younger. But I think it's also difficult, it would also be difficult on widows because they've already been married. And they know what it's like to be married and to have the intimacy and those sorts of things, and they could long for that. Widows that remarried often buried their second and maybe even third husbands back then and just didn't live very long. The Pharisees were keenly aware of this sad phenomenon, and they took this sad phenomenon and tried to turn it into an illustration to trap Jesus. And uh, this is a paraphrase of what they did or what they said to Jesus. If a woman marries and buries, let's say, seven husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? <laughs> she got seven husbands in the resurrection? It's like they're all lined up? Which one of us gets her? Well, you can have her. I did five years with her. <laughs> this is a, literally a, a, a potential entrapment. They tried, you know, they tried to take the sad phenomenon that existed, widows getting married and remarried and having, you know, or a husband getting remarried, whatever, and just, hey, they're trying to trap Jesus, Matthew 22, 26 to 28, that's the Phil Baker paraphrase. And Jesus replies to them, you are wrong and clueless concerning scripture and the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And that's just a few verses down, 29 and 30, that's the Phil Baker paraphrase. So it was very common for widows, uh, for women to lose, to wives to lose their husbands young, to remarry, to do it again. And, and the Pharisees even knew this and tried to use it to nail Jesus, and Jesus blasted them. Singleness may have been attractive to some of the widows because they could avoid that pain again and potentially again and again. Maybe once was enough, and how could they do the burials over and over and over? cost money. Verse 9, we're still under the singles banner here. He says this next, but if they cannot, he's speaking to the singles, the Christian singles, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's an interesting verse. I know Paul has stated clearly that he preferred singleness, but he also recognized at the same time that marriage might be better in specific circumstances, especially if uh, a single or maybe even a widow, they burn with passion and struggle to keep or to keep self-control in place, to, to be self-controlled. The presence of burning passion, which is a strong inner desire to be sexual, and I tend to think that that would be stronger among the widows because they've been sexual. Among the Christian singles back then that had been sexual, it's not going to be as strong. The experiences make those temptations stronger. We talked about this last week in a, a lot of detail, and it was a little awkward for me because I don't like talking about this stuff. But if this person, if, if these singles, if they had this passion to be sexual, a strong desire for it, combined with maybe a weak disposition or even zero ability to keep that, 
that temptation in check. I, Paul's saying you should go ahead and find a spouse. I think that those, the presence of those two things, that burning passion and a lack of self-control, pretty much prove that that person that has those two things is not, they don't have the gift of celibacy. Because it's a spiritual gift that God gives, and if they have it, it doesn't mean that they won't be tempted at times. It doesn't mean that they won't have some passions and things at times, because that's normative for all people. But they're not going to be as strong, and they'll be much more controllable by that individual if they're given the gift to remain that way. Doesn't it make sense? Why would God give somebody that gift, and then they can't even use it? So that's what he's saying here. But I would say that Christian singles should not, I mean, yep, maybe they should pursue, if they don't have the gift, they should, they should pursue marriage, obviously, but I don't think they should rush into it with the first guy or gal that comes down the pike. And that's something we see today. And I'm not talking about anyone in this church. You're sitting there going, oh my goodness, I only dated my husband for 24 hours. <laughs> we were in Vegas and what happens there couldn't stay there. You know? I'm not, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about anyone in this church. I'm just saying that this is a phenomenon, and I've seen it. And there are, I, I must preface this a little bit and say that there have been some times where two Christians got married pretty quickly, and they have wonderful marriages, right? It, it happens sometimes. God just blesses that thing, and, and they can somehow grow together without knowing each other very well. And, and it works out because maybe they're both very humble and, you know, and, and they're not controlling or whatever. I don't know. It can happen. It can go the other way. I get it. But I would say, no, 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 no. Don't just rush into this. I, I don't like doing marriage counseling. I don't. No pastor does. I don't know. Any pastor, I signed up for that. That's my major. What? <laughs> they want to be up here doing this. And marriage counseling is very hard. It's very tough. Especially when you're struggling to, to honor God in your own marriage at times. Amen? But no, don't, don't just rush into this. You know, Christians today, they're hilarious. You know, it's like, yeah, I think 31, they're starting, a gal maybe, 31, 32, starting to get worried. Like, man, I don't want to be an old maid. Uh, you know, uh, I, you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm into, uh, I, I'm into the, the old shows and the old books and, you know, Mr. Darcy. And I don't want to be the old maid who, you know, in, in that era, everyone, you know, all the families were trying to marry off their girls before they hit like 18. After that, it was it. I don't want to be that person. And so they meet one guy who says he's a Christian, and then three months later they're married. Only to discover that he's probably not a Christian. Because I'll tell you this right now. Men will do anything to get the girl they want. They will say anything. Oh, I love the Lord. Mm. We have a rich, intimate relationship, me and the Lord. Who's the Lord? They'll say anything. They'll go to a church for a long time to get the girl who wants them to go to church. Men, there's just about no length they'll go to to get the girl they're crazy about. So you have to spend time with them to figure out if they're legit. They're too legit to quit, right? MC Hammer, 90s. You gotta check, you gotta check. You gotta check yourself before you wreck yourself because you can wreck yourself by getting involved with the wrong guy or the wrong gal. You don't just rush into this thing here 
I don't rush into marriage with the first person that comes along. I'm not the biggest guy for Christian dating or Christian mingle or any of those sites, heaven forbid, but, you know, hey, whatever. What they should do is seek a person they can love, trust, and respect, letting marriage come as a response to the commitment of love they share. And that takes time. And last week I mentioned that the couple should be together long enough to experience some adversity to see how they're going to respond to it. Because usually when couples get married real quick and then experience adversity, they don't know what to do and then they part ways. They don't know how to deal with maybe the death of a child. I don't know how any parent knows how to deal with that, but they don't know how to deal with strife and selfishness or tribulation or persecution. And, you know, if you're together for a really short amount of time, you, you might not have been able to get thrown into the forge and learn how to deal with those things together because that's what you have to do. They should slow down and look for the right person, one who loves Jesus and backs that up with consistent obedience to his word. Now that could take time. The best way to find the right person is to be the right person, to become the best version of yourself. And that sounds very Joel Osteen, but let me get into it here. How is this done? Is it done by reading self-help books? No. Is it done by watching Joel Osteen programming and just pumping all this, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great into myself? Of course not. That's ridiculous. That's narcissism. Maybe it is achieved by applying a lot of Avon and Maybelline. No, this culture is focused on outward beauty. It has no concept of inward beauty. No, none of those are the solution. None of those are the answer. How do you become the best you? It is done by abiding in Christ so that you are conformed to his image. John 15, 4, Romans 8, 29. When we are like Jesus, we are becoming our best selves. The more like him, that's when we become our best. Not in the opposite. The best version of you looks and sounds and acts and obeys the word and lays down your life like Jesus did. That's the best you. That's the highest form of human. That is image bearer proper. It's not makeup. It's not self-help. That's all nonsense. It's when you're like Christ. That will make you attractive to the person who's focused on the right stuff. The person who's aiming for that same thing. I want to be like Jesus. Two people who are headed in that direction find each other attractive regardless of his nose hair. <laughs> if that's not attractive to you, there's something wrong with you. I'm talking about the nose hair. That's disgusting. <laughs> and it comes out like a tumbleweed. Let me tell you, I'm in there I'm like... You know, Rachel's like, oh, he's trimming up again. And that's just a, a reality. But what I'm saying is, is that if you are a Christian, the qualities of Christ in that person, that's what should be most attractive to you. And if you can't see that, get out of there. Get out of there. It's not even worth your time. It's not worth your time. That's heartache coming. You become the best you by becoming like Jesus. 
That's the highest form of human being. That is, I mean, what is the resurrection? It makes us most like Jesus. That's where the true beauty lies in being like the beautiful one. This world is lying to us. It's all about the exterior. I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't have some kind of chemistry or attraction to them physically. That's part of it too. But that's not all of it. Some of you know what that's like, right? You know, back in your days when you were single, you looked at a guy and, wow, he's really handsome. Then he started talking and you're like, this guy's six cans short of a six pack. <laughs> he can't even barely speak. That's not going to work. Although he is nice looking. Look, look here. What are they? Are they like Christ? Because that's, that should be attractive to you as a believer. And that should be the goal if you're a believer, to become like him, because that is the goal of your salvation. It's not just to put you in a place where there's streets paved like gold and mansions and, heaven forbid, like those Christian songs that were terrible in the 90s, playing football in the kingdom of God. I mean, it's just dumb. That's not the goal. The goal is to be like Jesus and to be with God forever and ever at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. So we should want as singles that kind of guy or gal. If Christian singles will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, their true needs will be met, Matthew 6, 33. And I know in that context, the disciples were just starting to follow Jesus and they were worried about what they would eat. They were worried about what they would wear and these sorts of things. And he says, man, you're worried about what you wear? Look at those lilies out there in the field. Even Solomon in all his wealth and splendor wasn't, you know, dressed like his raiments weren't like those flowers. You don't think that God, and those flowers are cut down and thrown in the fire on day six. You don't think that he's going to dress you? That's the context, but I think that we can expand out the meaning. It's not just bound to that context. If we focus on what we're supposed to be focused on, then the needs, they're met. And what we do is we get this tunnel vision and we're just focused. I need a spouse. I need a spouse. I need a spouse. And that could lead us to get the wrong spouse. And certainly, we're abusing things that we should be focused on because this is our focus. And so Jesus tells them, you focus on the kingdom of God and righteousness and all those needs will be met. And that's the same rule for all of us, especially single Christians when it comes to, man, I burn with the passion. I want a spouse. Well, focus on the things of God. I, I've often found in my own life, I don't find what I'm looking for when I'm looking for it. I tend to find what I'm looking for when I'm not looking for it at all, when I forget about it, and there it is. And I go, look at that, Lord. But when you're like, oh, it's all I can think about. Man, you're susceptible to you know, the first thing that comes along. That must be it. Let's go. If it's, right, so focus on the kingdom. If it's God's will for that single person to be married, he's going to send the right person and never too late in his timing. And I find that to be true too. In most instances, it's a timing issue. It's, a, it's not a, no, you're not going to get what you're desiring. It's just a timing issue. God has you in a season where 
He's teaching and training you to trust him and teaching you patience and all these valuable things. And, and, and that's, that's the class, that's the school you're in. And then in his perfect timing, he provides that need, usually while you're not focused on it. Oh, I'm reminded of my need now. And he's meeting it. Praise the Lord. Until the right person is found or God leads them to the single Christian, Christian singles should redirect their energy in ways that will be most helpful in keeping their minds free from sexual temptation. Two of the best ways are just to stay engaged in spiritual service and a lot of activities. Just find things to do. You know, idleness is a devil's playground. You sit around doing nothing. It's like you're asking for it. Stay busy serving the Lord. Christian singles should also avoid listening to or looking at or being around anything that strengthens sexual temptation. Should program their minds to focus only on that which is good and helpful. Should take special care to follow Paul's instructions in Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence in any of these things, if there is anything worthy of praise, that's what you must think on or think about. That's what he says there. Christian singles should realize that until God gives them the right person, brings that person into their life, he's going to provide strength to resist sexual temptation. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. How appropriate for Paul to say that to the exact same audience that seemingly had no self-control and couldn't keep anything together. Lastly, Christian singles should give thanks to the Lord for their station in life and be content in it. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Philippians 4.11. Look, just as a rule of thumb, the Christian who is neither thankful for where God has them nor content with what God has given them should not expect to receive anything new from the Lord. If you can't worship Him and be thankful to Him and glorify Him with where you're at and with what you have now, why would he, even as a good father, give you something else, the thing that you're pursuing or want? We need to go back at this point and reread the parable of the, what? I mean, there's multiple parables we could read, but we should go back and uh, learn about God, how God rewards and stewardship and these sorts of things. Maybe the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Go back and look at what he expects from you. He expects you to manage what you already have, to be thankful for what you already have, to glorify him for what you already have, to be content with where you're at. That's his expectation. And if we can't practice that, why would we think that he's going to Give us something new. I mean, some of you out here in this room are parents. If your kids are not grateful for what you provide, not happy with where you live and all these things, is that going to inspire you to give them more and find a bigger and better house for them? No, it makes me want to put them in their room. Until you learn to be thankful for what we've provided, you're not getting anything. You're lucky you have oxygen. Now, God is holy and doesn't speak like me in that regard. That's just me flipping off. But it's like, but he is a good father. He is a father. He's, I'm a father. Don't you think that the potential 
for, for offending him is there if he's given you something and he has you at a place and you're not cool with that? Yes. Yes. Why would God reward such disdain and poor stewardship? Why would he reward that with something that you've had your eye on when you're not even thankful for what you've had your eyes on? Why? As a parent, a good parent's not going to say, okay, here you go. A bad parent spoils the kid and gives them things in the midst of all that selfishness and narcissism rather than showing them the way of the belt. Sparing them the rod. No. Just saying. So that's the first type that he addresses, right? Christian singles. Let's move to the second point here or second type. Number two, marriage guidelines for Christians married to other Christians. We see this in verses uh, 10 to 11, and I'll just read both verses. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. All right. So the Corinthians were wondering if it is lawful for a Christian wife to divorce her Christian husband and vice versa. Is that something that we should be doing is what they're saying and asking. They sent him a letter asking these questions. Of course, in the Greco-Roman culture they lived in, it was perfectly fine to divorce no matter what. Uh, that culture was like our culture. It had a no-fault divorce system in place, just like California. It used to be that, you know, if you wanted to divorce your spouse here in the Golden State, you had to have really good reason and prove it. And today it can just be because I don't like her spaghetti. Or as I used to say in the first century, I don't like the way that he makes the falafel. <laughs> He's out of here. I mean, Moses talks about this. The early Israelites were writing each other certificates of divorce for the lightest things. But there was a no-fault system in place in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire. If you're tired of your spouse and wanted to get out of the relationship, you just had to hire an arbitrator and have that person dissolve the marriage. It was that simple. Notice the interesting parenthetical statement, parenthetical statement halfway through verse 10. He says, not I, but the Lord. That's interesting. And it kind of throws people off. That was Paul's way of telling his readers that the following guidelines came from the Lord Jesus himself from his own lips, even during his own incarnation and ministry. In other words, these are the guidelines that came directly from Christ when he was with us. That's what it means. Right? So, is he, is he trying to establish like a higher level of authority here? Well, I don't really think so because then that would mean when he speaks, when he speaks, Paul speaks from himself, then that has lower authority and that's scripture we don't have to take serious. So, it can't mean that. He's just saying, Jesus said this. This is not coming from me right now in a new revelatory way through the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Spirit. This is something that Jesus taught. These guidelines that he's about to unfold, that's all it means. Nothing less, nothing more. Paul says, to the married I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is from Matthew 19, 5 and 6, where Jesus quotes the marriage text in Genesis 2, 24, and then adds, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. 
Jesus taught this. So the short answer from, uh, from both Jesus and Paul is, to the question they have, can Christians divorce each other, the short answer from Christ and from Paul is no! Christian couples should not get divorced. It's that simple. To further illustrate the solidity of a Christian marriage, Paul gives the Corinthians two options if they unlawfully separate from their spouses. Number one, remain unmarried. Don't remarry if you broke it off with your spouse and you didn't do it biblically. Heaven forbid that we would think there's a biblical way to do that because that's not the heart of Scripture. It's reconciliation. But there are concessions in Scripture. But two things you must do if you have parted ways and you didn't do it Biblically, dare I say, remain unmarried or two, be reconciled to your spouse. Go back and fix the relationship. This is a play on Jesus' words in Matthew 19, verse 9, where he declared, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that's going outside of the marriage for sex, and that person marries another, they commit adultery. If a Christian separates from their spouse over something other than sexual immorality, Jesus and Paul are saying they should seek reconciliation, not remarriage, or they should just stay in a mode of singleness. And if they reject these guidelines, go ahead and go through with a divorce, and, then, and they don't have the biblical grounds, it's not for sexual immorality, it's for something else, and they remarry, then he or she that does this commits adultery. It's, that's the, the plainest clearest meaning of the text and and there are a thousand people out there that'll try to make it say something else and it doesn't say anything else it says what it says well what if he was it, it, no it says what it says this is one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor and for me personally is that when I read something like this it's so plain but the is I want to make it, I want to bend it so it fits with this scenario I'm dealing with or with what somebody I love and care for has already done. It says what it says. And that's it. But what? No, not but what? I, I, I don't say that with malice in my heart. I say it with fear because it says what it says. And it means what it means. It's, it's, it, if there is a way out of marriage, it's sexual immorality, and that's it according to that text. And that's it. Not what if. MacArthur adds something nice here. If a Christian divorces another Christian except for adultery, neither partner is free to marry another. They must stay single or rejoin their former mate. In God's eyes, that union has never been broken. Wow, that, that's, that's literally what Paul means. That's what Jesus means. And I think some of us are familiar with this, maybe most. Desertion is sometimes used as a justification for divorce between Christians, right? Well, what if I have a Christian spouse and he just leaves me cold? That's desertion. That's abandonment. And that happens. But I, I would say we need to tread very lightly there because that is not as clear as sexual immorality. That's clear. The other one isn't very clear. And you might be thinking, yes, it is, because I know what it says down in verse 15. Hold your horses. Be careful. 
right? Because I thought the same thing. Then I got to verse 15 and I read it carefully and I was like, oh no, I've been giving wrong counsel. Maybe. Right? There's a view that, you know, desertion is, is, is a justification for divorce between Christians, but I say tread lightly. The text used to support this view is in verse 15. It's nowhere else that I can find in Scripture. It's right here in our text, just down a little bit further. But that text is centered on unequally yoked Christians, believers married to unbelievers. That's the context, and that's the text. So you've got to be careful here. Right? It clearly states that if an unbelieving partner separates from their Christian spouse, that means deserts, the Christian spouse is free to let them go and move on with their life. That is the focus of verse 15. Therefore, we shouldn't run to it to use it to somehow justify or encourage divorce or setting a wife or a husband free that's been abandoned. Some, you know, two Christians. You can't just, you can't just take this text and use it for that purpose because it clearly says unequally yoked. Unbelieving partner. That's where the mistake is made. People aren't slowing down to read it carefully. Well, Christians can, you know, yeah, she can move on if their Christian spouse left. That's not what it says. However, if you take that text, because Scripture affirms Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Phil Baker doesn't interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. I give the interpretation of the interpretation of the interpretation. And I don't say this as an escape clause. Here we go. I just say, look at the totality of Scripture. And if you take our text that we're looking at right now, and then you look in Matthew 18, 17, Christian to Christian over desertion might be justifiable. It might be okay. In that particular text, Matthew 18, 17, and everyone knows this, that's the famous disciplinary text. Right? If your brother sins against you, you go and make it known, that's the text. It goes all the way down to excommunication, that's like the final step. Treat him as a pagan, treat him as an unbeliever, right? You, you think of that, the context of Matthew 18, that's what Jesus is saying there. It says that the brother who refuses to repent of his sin, and this is after being rebuked multiple times, first by the person who was offended by them, then by witnesses, and then by the elders, and then maybe by the church, right? At the end of the disciplinary process, my paraphrase, or actually it's the CAV, the Contemporary English Version says, that man or woman who refuses to repent after going through that whole process must be treated as a what? Unbeliever. Whoa, now we're talking. Treat them as an unbeliever. See them as an unbeliever. View them as an unbeliever. So you know where I'm headed, don't you? If the sin this guy won't repent of is abandonment of his spouse, and he's gone all the way through the process, and he's to be treated like an unbeliever, then that sounds like 1 Corinthians 7.15 is applicable. That is an unbeliever who has abandoned his spouse. That woman can let him go and move on. Right? We interpret Scripture with Scripture. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to go to that every time there's a situation. I'm begging a couple to work it out. I'm begging a couple to pursue reconciliation. I'm begging a guy to come to his senses. I'm begging a gal to come to her senses. I'm begging them to live as Christians. And sometimes they just don't want to do it, no matter what. 
but there is where the potential for abandonment becomes potentially legitimate. But I say tread lightly. In that scenario, that guy who's abandoned the wife, who professed Christ but isn't acting anything like a Christian, doesn't represent or look even remotely or sound even like a Christian, because they usually don't in those scenarios, he becomes the unbelieving partner who deserted his Christian wife, and she is now free to move on. And if she chooses to remarry, it is lawful. If he does that later on, it's adultery. In summary, and I forgot to read the summary of the last verse, the last section, but that's okay. In summary, marriage guidelines for Christians married to other Christians. If we were to summarize what we just looked at and boil it down to two words, stay married. That's what Paul's saying. If you're a Christian and you're married to another Christian, stay married. Stay married. And he warns them, if you end your marriage unlawfully, you have to stay single. Or you have to seek to reconcile. You have only two options. You either stay single the rest of your life so you can avoid adultery, which is a more grievous sin than desertion or whatever, than, than you know, just getting out of the marriage for unbiblical reasons. But you've know, you got to either stay single or you need to reconcile. If you divorce and remarry, you commit an even worse sin, adultery. That, those are the guidelines that he gives the Christians married to Christians. And, of course, the guidelines to the previous type was it's good to be single. But if you burn with passion and all that, it's not very good to be single. So go ahead and pursue marriage. Move to the third and final point or type, number three. This type uh, gets more attention than the others, and I, I think it needs to because the dynamic here is just really, really Interesting, but the third type he addresses is and gives marriage guidelines. Marriage guidelines for Christians married to non-Christians. And this is all in verses 12 to 16. We'll look at 12 to 13 firstly. To the rest I say, and here's another strange parenthetical, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Stop there. The words, I, not the Lord, do not imply that Paul's instructions here lack authority. These guidelines do not lack authority or that he's just offering an opinion. He's simply distinguishing his own words from the words that Jesus said about this subject. He was in incarnation and ministry. So, so he's not saying, look, this is my opinion. You don't have to take it as serious as what I just said in the previous verse. He's, he's all authoritative. We have to take all of it serious. He's just saying, this is coming through me right now as I write this. This is God revealing this to you through me as I write this. It's not me quoting or citing what Jesus said. That's all he's saying. So, and people try to take this and look, look, this isn't as authoritative or as important. No, 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 that's not what it means. That's just you trying to get away with something. He's just distinguishing what he's saying now from what Jesus said then. First, he tells the brother or brothers, that's Christian husbands, that are married to unbelieving wives to stay in their marriages if their wives consent. 
He's saying if your unbelieving wife wants to stay married to you, and honestly, I, I, this is me uh, paraphrasing, she should really want to stay with you as a Christian husband because you've been the best stinking husband you can as a Christian husband. No Christian wife should be wanting to run from, unbelieving wife should want to run from a, a believing husband. Maybe he's been hard or critical on her, who knows, but he should be the best husband he can be and she should just be madly in love with him. But he's saying, if your unbelieving wife wants to stay married to you, you can't divorce her. You need to stay married to her. That's what he's saying. I think some of the Corinthians were thinking, well, we're unequally yoked because I got saved later. We married when we were both unbelievers, but now I'm a believer and we're nothing alike in that regard. So can I go ahead and marry? You're saying, does she want to stay with you? Yeah, she does. Then you cannot divorce her. No, under no circumstances. So firstly, he addresses the brothers, that's the Christian husbands. And then secondly, he tells the women, that's Christian wives that are married to unbelieving husbands, to stay in their marriages if their husbands consent. Same thing. He's saying if your unbelieving husband wants to stay married to you, and I would apply the exact same truth here, that a Christian wife should be beautiful to an unbelieving husband because she's... As Peter says, just soft and gentle and kind and compassionate. It's not her exterior beauty that attracts the husband to her, maybe a little bit, but it's who she is. She's like Christ, and he's somehow drawn to that. So, but he's saying here, look, if this is the scenario, you cannot divorce him if he wants to stay in the marriage, and he should. You cannot divorce him. You must stay with him. That's the guideline. And I think these guidelines probably dropped like an absolute atomic bomb on some of these Corinthians. They were just looking for easy ways to get out of their unequally yoked marriages. But Paul is stopping them dead in their tracks right here. Does she want... Fred? Does Margaret want to stay with you? Well, yeah, of course. Then why are you talking about divorcing her? That's unjust. You married her. Yeah, I know, but I'm a believer now. So you should be the best husband ever, not trying to get, kick her to the curb. What are you doing? This is their thinking. And then some of the women were doing the exact same thing. Margaret, you know. Paul stops them dead in their tracks. If their unbelieving spouse is consented to stay married and remain sexually faithful, right? Because that's the only way out, according to the text. It's, 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 it's infidelity, right? If, if the unbelieving spouses wanted to stay with their spouses and, 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 and remain sexually faithful to their spouses, these Christian husbands and wives, they could not pursue divorce under any circumstances. They were bound by the covenant they made, obligated to stay in those marriages. Just a, a, imagine with me how ugly it would be for some husband who now professes Christ and now he's going to church and doing all this stuff and he's been loving and caring and nurturing and a provider for his wife and then he starts, you know, now he's professing Christ and he's going to church and doing all this and he comes back around and says, I want to get a divorce. What? Can you imagine? Do you think that that unbelieving spouse is... I'm just so interested in your God. I'd like to come to know him. You said he's a God of love. He sounds like the God of divorce. This is what they were doing. How? There's a disconnect in some of these people in this church from reality. No, you have to stay in those marriages. If they disregarded the guidelines that he's giving right here, even though he says, these are coming from me right now, 
if they disregarded them and then went ahead and went through with those divorces, that would be sin. And if they remarried later on, it would be an even greater sin, adultery. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is a very, very interesting verse, set of verses here, or verse, I should say here, that is just not treated properly. I'm going to give it a go. I think Paul's statement here in response to their questions, it reveals one of the motives behind the push for divorce in this church. Some of the, um, some of the unequally yoked Christians, they, they, they were under the impression or thought that, you know, look, if, if we push through with the divorce and separate, they were under the impression that God would somehow stop blessing and showing favor to these families or whatever. Like, you know, if I'm married to a Christian, if, if I'm an unbeliever and I'm married to a Christian, the Christian is now thinking that, well, if I'm married to an unbeliever, God's going to cut off the blessings because he only blesses Christian marriages, not marriages. That's the thinking. I'm sorry. I was messing it up. That's the thinking in this church. I'm married to an unbeliever. If I stay married to them, God's going to cut off his favor and blessings to our family. It's going to put us at risk because God doesn't want me to be married to an unbeliever. That's the thinking. In their letter to Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, the Corinthians asked if being married to unbelievers will make them unholy, make their children unclean. That's the fear. Right? So, so I'm married to an unbeliever and we have children together. I know that he doesn't love the Lord. I know that he's unholy in that regard and all that. What kind of impact does that have on my own spiritual life? And what kind of impact does that have on our children? Are they just a bunch of little devils running around because Fred's a devil? This is the thinking. And I think it's legitimate thinking. It's a good curiosity. They wrote Paul this and asked this question. And Paul's response is just awesome. He's saying absolutely not. Being married to an unbelieving husband or wife will not make you unholy. It won't make your children unclean. That's what he's saying. That, I understand your concern there, but no, you don't have anything to worry about. He's telling them the opposite is actually true. You as a believer will make your unbelieving spouse and children holy and clean. So it's not that the unbelieving spouse makes everything filthy and dirty and not blessable or unblessable. It's your presence in that marriage sanctifies your spouse and sets your children apart as clean. So the exact opposite is true of what they thought. MacArthur, again, Christians married to unbelievers are not to worry that they themselves, their marriage, or their children will be defiled by the unbelieving spouse. On the contrary, the very opposite uh, uh, the very opposite is the case. Both the children and the unbelieving spouse will be sanctified through the believing wife or husband. So they're worried that being married to an unbeliever is going to jack everything up and ruin it. And he's saying now the reverse happens. That unbelieving spouse is actually sanctified by you. Now, I think that we know that the dynamics with being married to an unbeliever, they're there. They're difficult. And that unbeliever will not live a holy, pure life and will threaten the family with filth and bad attitudes and all that. But that's not what Paul's dealing with here. There is dangers in being married to an unbeliever. 
different worldviews, and it's just a mess. But he's saying that that unbeliever does not make your children defiled, nor you. God has set you apart, has set your children apart, and has even set your unbelieving spouse apart in a because of you. So it's the opposite that's true. And I think that came as a great relief to them. Paul is talking about what we call matrimonial sanctification and familial sanctification. These forms of sanctification, they're not salvific. They don't save. They don't guarantee salvation. They, they don't guarantee salvation. They do not make unbelieving spouses and children spiritually holy. God makes unbelievers spiritually holy when he takes away their sins, wraps them or clothes them in the righteousness of Christ, sets them apart for himself. That's at conversion. That is not what Paul is talking about here. Unbelieving spouses are not automatically saved because they're tied to a believer. It's not what he's saying. Matrimonial and familial sanctification are like a spiritual covering that protects unbelieving spouses and children from undue spiritual harm. Paul is telling the Corinthians that unbelieving husbands and your children, they fall under God's sanctifying protective care because they are connected to you, believer. That's what he's saying. That is the meaning of verse 14. How wonderful is that to know that maybe you in this audience today, you know you're married to an unbeliever, you got saved later or whatever, maybe you were saved and married an unbeliever, you know, and you've been dealing with that, but maybe usually what happens is two people get married, they're not believers, one gets saved, still married to the unbeliever, but how nice is it to know, how encouraging is it to know from this text that although she or he is an unbeliever, that does not impact your sanctification, that does not make your children defiled, your grandchildren defiled. It does not cut off God's favor or blessings to your family. It doesn't have any kind of impact on it whatsoever. That's an encouragement. So the unequally yoked Christians in this context, in this church, that were worried about this effect that being married to unbelievers could have, they could just put those fears aside. They could drop the idea of divorce as a way to keep God's favor and blessings flowing because they were going to flow and no matter what because there's a believer in the house. And they could rejoice in knowing that God had set apart and was protecting their families. It's amazing what God does when there's one believer present in a household. Everybody in the household is in a sense covered. Not saved, but covered. And that's the meaning of the text. So the Corinthians could put away with their fears. Verse 15, but if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So this looks like another concession to me, like in, back in verse 6. Paul permits the dissolvement of a marriage if the unbelieving partner separates or abandons their Christian husband or wife. If they choose to leave, right, if you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever says, I'm out of here, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm just done. If they choose to leave, it is biblically lawful for that Christian spouse to let them go. That's what it says. And I think there's a, a, a great many in the church gals and guys, primarily gals who are married to unbelieving spouses who treat them like dirt who are horrible toward them, 
constantly critical, constantly persecuting, constantly verbally abusive, sometimes physically abusive, wants to leave, wants to go, can't stand the marriage, and this Christian wife is clinging to them because she has some kind of misplaced fear or whatever. And Paul is saying, let him go. Let him go. If he wants to go, let him go. Don't let the door hit him on the rear or let it hit him on the rear. Let him go. That's what he's saying. That's what he is saying here. It's amazing to me. I mean, if this person chooses to file for a divorce and, and leaves and file for divorce, it is literally biblically lawful for the Christian to say, okay, and to sign on the dotted line. Fine. I'm not going to war with you anymore. Donald J. Trump or whatever. I don't know where that came from. It's probably from Daryl because he's a big fan. Paul even, this is astounding to me, Paul even encourages Christians to not put up a fight in this situation. The Christian spouse is not to put up a fight. Why? Because God has called them to peace. What happens if you put up a fight? It just destroys everything in the house. Unity, peace, everything's gone, and God is very big on peace. Children are impacted. The believing brother or sister is no longer enslaved. Because when a believing brother or sister is tied to an unbeliever who wants to go and treats them like terrible, it is like an enslavement. And Paul says that brother or sister, when that, one, that unbeliever wants to go, they are not enslaved. They are not covenantally bound to their unbelieving partner. And they can actually let them go and sign the papers, let them go and move on with their life. And if that brother or sister believer who's let them go and let them go through the divorce and all that, and that's all happened. If they want to move on and remarry, it is not sin. It's lawful. But if the unbelieving spouse who left and abandoned and did all that stuff, if they go and remarry, it is adultery for them. They are criminal, according to Scripture. Now, I would just say, we're getting close close down to the end, but I would just say that verse 15, it just seems a little pessimistic to me. Right? you sense it there? As in Paul was pessimistic concerning unequally yoked marriages, right? He just said that if an unbelieving partner wants to go, let them go without any resistance. Don't fight for him. Don't fight for her. Don't fight for your marriage. Let it end peacefully. That's what he said. But I don't think that Paul was actually pessimistic. I do, however, think that his expectations weren't all that high for unequally yoked marriages because he understood the dynamics and how difficult they can be. And statistically speaking, they usually don't work out, even in his day. So he's not pessimistic, he's realistic. I don't think he expects them to work out. I, I don't think that he wishes that they wouldn't work out, but I think he understands how he, as a believer, can just say to himself, okay, I know what I'm like, and I know what I love, and I know what I pursue, and I know how I want to preach the gospel. Okay, what would it be like to be married to a woman who is the exact opposite? No way! That's realism. That's sober-mindedness. He knew and understood how difficult unequally yoked marriages could be, and he understood that they don't always go the distance. They're just... Very, very hard, especially on the believer, right? Just think about it as a believer being married to an unbeliever. How 
much more difficult will it be for you, married to an unbeliever, to glorify God in all things while being yoked to a spouse who does not give a rip about the glory of God. Sounds like a challenge. And this is why Paul explicitly warned Christian singles in this church not to marry unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. He reasoned, you want to marry an unbeliever? Because that was going on here. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's a demon. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He's trying to reason with these Christian singles who want to marry unbelievers. He's saying, you have nothing in common with them other than maybe attraction. But we do need to remember that Paul commanded believers to stay with their unbelieving spouses if those unbelieving spouses consent. Did we not just look at that at verses, in verses 12 and 13? He did say, stay with them if they want to stay with you. So he expects believers to make their marriages work if their unbelieving spouses are consenting and willing to work on it with them. If that's the case, stay in it. Paul understood that marriage should be honored by all, Hebrews 13.4. But he was also realistic because he was aware of the dynamics that exist within unequally yoked marriages, clashing worldviews, contrasting values, competing endeavors, and so on and so on. The list is so long. Unequally yoked marriages can be very, very, very hard. My wife was saved two years before me. She made me get saved. She's like, you're getting saved or I will put you in hell because I was putting her through hell. She didn't save me, but she wanted me to be saved because I made that marriage very, very hard with my narcissism and selfishness and addictions, and it was a disaster. It can be very, very difficult to be married to an unbeliever. Paul understood this. But I would also say that God is very, very good, and he gives much, much grace, an abundance of grace, an ocean of grace, the seven seas of grace to Christian husbands and wives in that context, in unequally yoked marriages, so they can endure, so they can press on, so that they can humbly serve those unbelieving spouses faithfully unto the Lord. He will do that. He will. That doesn't mean, hey, rush into that. Don't do it. Stay away from it. Don't touch it with a 50-foot pole. But if you're in it, God can give you grace to endure. To press on. So verse 15, I don't see it as pessimistic. It's realistic. And there's nothing wrong with that. It should be seen, pay attention as we're getting to wrap up. It should be seen as an encouragement to Christians who have been abandoned by a spouse. It is not sinful for that abandoned Christian spouse to let them go and move on with their lives. And it is not adultery for them to remarry. That is an encouragement. And it serves as a warning to Christian singles. Do not marry an unbeliever. You are asking for trouble if you do this. Potential abandonment, a profusion, and a profusion of other painful struggles and tribulations and trials, heartache after heartache. It's just not wise. Do not do it unless you're a glutton for punishment. But this is not to say that Christian to Christian marriages are always rainbows and my little pony. 
Mm -mm. They can be very, very challenging too. But at least the couple will be unified where it really counts. Despite their many flaws and foibles, they can seek and pursue Christ together. And let me tell you, that, that makes all the difference in the world. That makes all the difference in the world. Last verse, verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is an interesting verse. It just seems so bizarre. It would appear that some of the unequally yoked Christians were reluctant to let their unbelieving spouses go because they feared for their souls. They were thinking things like, well, you know, I, I know I'm married to an unbeliever. I, I'm, I'm married to Fred, and, and he wants to go, and, and I understand. I, you know, I, I feel bad about the situation, but what happens if I let him go? Who will share the gospel with him? Who will save his soul from the fires of hell? That's a, that kind of view is, is based in ignorance. I understand that. But it is a, a bit of compassion, and, I, and it resonates with me a little bit. It's just wrong thinking. But I don't want to let my unbelieving spouse go because I fear for their soul. So I stay in this marriage, hopefully to win them to Christ. That's the thinking. It's not right thinking, but it's better thinking. And Paul asks a rhetorical question here, doesn't he? To the Christian wives. He says, how do you know whether or not you will save your husband? In other words, how do you know that he's going to get saved? How, how do you even know that? How do you know that staying in the marriage is going to equal his salvation? How do you know this? How can you be sure of that? And he says the exact same thing to Christian husbands. How are you sure of this? What guarantee do you have? See, they're, they're, they're wanting to stay in it because they're worried about the souls. And Paul is saying, but you're basing that on what? What guarantee do you have? His point is very simple. It's that evangelism is not cause enough to maintain a marriage, especially if the unbelieving partner wants to leave. And, and, and what the Corinthians didn't understand is that God is perfectly capable of bringing someone else into their life with the gospel so they can hear it. In other words, he's not entirely dependent on you, Christian spouse, to see this conversion through. He can do it through somebody else. He can bring, uh, 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 he can bring somebody else into their life. They could be walking to the agora, to the market, and there's a street preacher. I, he's not saying that I'm playing on it, but Paul's saying, you think that this is up to you and you're staying in this marriage, and, and it's not up to you. God is the God who saves. If, if your unbelieving spouse has been chosen and appointed to salvation, they will be saved with or without you there. See, they didn't understand the sovereignty of God, right? And they also didn't understand that if the spouse, unbelieving spouse, had not been chosen by God or elected unto salvation, they also didn't understand that no no degree, no matter how high it is, of gospel preaching in that home and godly living as an example would change their heart. It's not that it doesn't matter, because it does, because that's what we're called to do, but you could preach the gospel to a spiritually dead person. If God doesn't make them alive, you're just preaching to a spiritual corpse. They just didn't understand these things. Oh, I can't let him go, because who will save him? 
Well, first of all, you're not going to save him. God is the Savior. And he pretty much has shown you, your husband, that he hates you and wants to leave. So I don't think you're going to win him to Christ. <laughs> all of a sudden, he's going to listen to your gospel? He hates your gospel. He hates you. He didn't care about the kids. Reminds me when I was... 14 and my dad bounced, just bounced, just bye, see ya. Oh, I love you, I'm leaving, bye. You know, that, that doesn't work. You love me and you leave. That, I... Paul's reasoning with them here. You, you, you don't understand the way this works. God can bring somebody else into their life. Evangelism, evangelism. and I think there's probably some people in church today that are keeping that marriage going because they're worried about Fred's salvation. I just can't break it off of them because I'm worried about his soul. Oh, 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 oh. So just go, let him heap abuse upon abuse. Keep destroying the peace in your home by trying to keep it together with this guy who is adamant about leaving, who's running around all over town on you, who maybe you'll hear about getting saved 20 years from now, but it's not going to be through you. Let him go. Let him go and, and trust his soul with the God who saves souls. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. God is capable of doing it through somebody else. He doesn't need you to do that. In summary, marriage guidelines for Christians married to non-Christians. If an unbelieving spouse consents to stay in the marriage, stay in the marriage. Right? Stay in it. Keep ministering to them. Keep serving them. Keep loving them. It, Look for grace and mercy from God as you have to endure the foolishness sometimes that's associated with that or the belligerence or whatever it is. Stay in it. But if he or she wants to leave and get divorced, let them go without any resistance. Make sure that you fight for peace in your home and in your life, not for a marriage that is not going to work. Let, let them go. And trust the God who saves. Fred's left me and it hurts, but I've let him go. I've obeyed your word, but I am trusting that you will reach him with the gospel. I pray that. And I even pray that maybe someday we could be reconciled. Who knows? Maybe it'll be too late to go back to marriage, but I would like to get along with him. I married him. I love him. But I want to see him saved. And I know that I cannot save him. I couldn't even save my marriage. How can I save a dead man's soul? Let him go and move on. You're, 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 not, you're not shackled any longer. Let him go. You're not, as Paul says, enslaved. Because bad marriage is, is like slavery. Let him go. Let him go. And move on with your life. And if you remarry, it's not adultery. And if Fred, who left, remarries, now he's got an even more grievous sin to deal with. And God is going to deal with him. 